Now, the story I'm about to unfold took place in the early 90s, just about the time of our conflict with Saddam and the Iraqis, and I only mention it because sometimes there's a band. I won't say heroes, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a band, and I'm talking about the KLF here. Sometimes there's a band who, well, they're the band for their time and place. They fit right in there. And that's the KLF in 1990. And even if they were crazy men, and the KLF were certainly that, quite possibly the craziest in all the music industry, which would place them high in the running for craziest worldwide. But sometimes there's a band. Sometimes there's a band. And of course we all agree, listening to this podcast, that the best music was made in 1990. And it spreads out from there in a nice bell curve on either side. And oddly, the KLF's rise and fall match that curve quite nicely. Coincidence or conspiracy? We'll talk about it, but you can be the judge. The album I'm talking about today is the second of their two landmark albums. The first of these, which came out in 1990, would secure their indie cult status as pioneers in a new genre they created called Ambient House. But this album, which came out in 1991, would secure their status as chart-topping monsters and would bring them to mainstream attention. And for me, that occurred at a high school dance when the DJ played this furious techno track with an odd bleeping noise in there and a chorus that chanted, KLF, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, folks, that was my introduction to the now legendary club track, 3AM Eternal, by the justified ancients of Moo Moo, furthermore known as the Jams, but best known to the world and children everywhere as the Copyright Liberation Front, or the KLF. Of course, it was just one single from their latest album, a masterpiece of another new genre that they had just invented called Stadium House. The album was called The White Room. What was my reaction at the time? Did I run out and purchase it? Did my friends and I immediately become KLF devotees? Strangely, no. They were presented as just another disposable techno act. They weren't industrial. They didn't seem to us to be edgy at all. And I suppose, if anything, we figured they were a bit lightweight, kind of like Roxette or Vanilla Ice or MC Hammer. Just another flavor of the month. And if anything, we sort of made fun of their corny lyrics and samples. But it was all a lie. And we had swallowed it. And it wouldn't be until some years later after Wikipedia was a thing, when I would discover the shocking truth about this band. And yes, I'm being intentionally clickbaity here, because that's exactly how the KLF would want it. It turns out they weren't really a band in the ordinary sense, and they were certainly musicians, and they had certainly been employed in various music industry roles prior to their success. But it turns out that there was something subversive going on, they were playing an entirely different game, and part of that game was to give the public exactly what it wanted, but in a very calculated way. In fact, that worked so well for them that they ended up publishing a manual that gave step-by-step -step instructions for anyone else to duplicate their success. More on that in a bit. But their career was an experiment of sorts. It was actually a series of experiments having to do with the nature of success, the nature of art, 
and what relationship those two things had, if any. So obviously, in order to perform these experiments, they had to create art and they had to achieve success. And I would argue that they did both of those things in a very spectacular way. And their subjects were the rest of us, the punters, the public at large, the hoi polloi. We were the petri dish in which they dropped their various formulas. And some of these experiments would die with a whimper, some would flourish beyond anyone's wildest dreams, and some would be purposely snuffed out just as they were taking off. But the KLF's explorations would extend beyond established boundaries and rules. In today's terms, we would say that they were being very meta. They were toying with the rules of the industry itself, its scripts, its formulas, its smug self-congratulation, its sense of competition, its disposability, and most importantly, its levers of power. But here is the key. They did this not in a cynical or ironic way or as a way to simply grab cash. At their heart, this is what the KLF were about. They genuinely loved pop music, and they genuinely loved the industry that enabled its creation. But by challenging its norms, they helped all of us question the nature of art and success and even what it means to be happy. And these are deep issues. Maybe these are the deepest issues, and they're central to what it means to be a human and to live a fulfilling life. So think of any band or artist that you consider to be deep. Maybe they are, but I'd bet that that deep message comes to you pretty directly, maybe from their lyrics or from their music, and not necessarily from the trajectory or context of their career, like the KLFs. As I said, they were playing a completely different game. And for sure, I wasn't getting any of that deeper message there on that high school dance floor as I listened to 3AM Eternal that first time. The only message I was getting was the one that was on the surface. These lyrics are pretty stupid, but in true KLF style, the real message was hidden and it would take some work to uncover. And the whole picture wouldn't really become clear until I learned more of their backstory. So, who were the KLF? Well, they were a partnership, and in many partnerships, there's a dynamic where one person is the instigator and the other is the catalyst. The instigator might be a dreamer or just have a lot of crazy ideas, but probably wouldn't act on them without there being the catalyst to handle logistics and actually make something happen. And that's what happened in this case. The instigator was a man named Bill Drummond, and the catalyst was a man named Jimmy Cotty. Bill was a music industry figure well before the KLF. He was the guitarist for the Liverpool punk band, punk band Big in Japan. He co-founded Zoo Records with his bandmate David Balf and managed bands like Echo and the Bunnymen and the Teardrop Explodes. And it soon became clear to all that Bill was a man who saw the world on the oblique as the Bunnymen's manager, he famously planned a tour that visited an odd variety of really small villages. And the band, who were pretty successful at this time, were getting confused as to why they were playing small pubs night after night in the middle of nowhere. And it was only later, when someone plotted this tour on the map, that his secret plan became clear. The route was in the form of giant rabbit ears. <laughs> 
And Bill also co-managed the band Brilliant, which was led by Killing Joke's ex-bassist Martin Glover, a.k.a. Youth. And Brilliant were conceived as a pretty straightforward pop act, but despite the band fizzling after a few releases, Bill struck up a friendship with their guitarist, a fellow named Jimmy Cotty. And in July of 1986, back when I was in middle school and listening primarily to Van Halen, Bill Drummond reached the age of 33 and a third, which is, of course, the speed at which a vinyl LP revolves. This was an important time to Bill. Uh, again, a man who sees things on the oblique. He celebrated by quitting his job as an A&R man and by releasing a solo CD, which I see now sells on eBay for around $50. And by New Year's Day 1987, he was at a loose end and decided that a big change was in order. He wanted to make a hip-hop record, but he didn't want to do it himself. He needed a partner. He needed that catalyst. So he thought back, who do I know who can help me do this? And he remembered his old pal, Jimmy Cotty. So Bill reached out and said, hey, let's form a band called the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. <laughs> as you do. And the, the name of the band w came from a subversive conspiracy group in the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, Bill was a big fan. And Jimmy, of course, said, sure, what a great idea. And the two adopted their new alter egos. Cody became Rockman Rock, leather-jacketed guitarist and cool dude, and Drummond became King Boy D, Scottish rapper and visionary. So let's talk about their early projects. Without getting into tremendous detail, let's just say they proceeded to lay waste to the music industry with little more than a digital sampler and some high-profile graffiti. Uh, it should be said that they weren't the first band to use samplers. I would argue that the first popular band to primarily use a sampler would be The Art of Noise, with their 1984 album, Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise. More on that in a separate episode. And I would say the first widely popular sample montage song would end up being Pump Up the Volume by Mars in 1987. But the Jam's innovation would be to push the limits of sampling. They wanted to find exactly where that legal line was between borrowing and stealing. So they were going to push it farther than anyone previously had. And so to that end, they released their first album, 1987, What the F is Going On, which famously included great tracks of music sampled directly from other records, most notably by Swedish pop stars ABBA. Now, ABBA litigated, which the jams were delighted about because they used it as an opportunity to try to meet their heroes. And when ABBA refused to appear, uh, the Jams took the remaining copies of the album and burned them in a field, documenting the whole thing, of course, as a performance piece. And one of the shots of that made it onto the cover of this History of the Jams compilation, as you see here. So for those listening as a podcast, it shows a field, an empty field with the jam standing next to a 1968 uh, Ford Galaxy police car with a big plume of smoke in the background. And of course, if we open this up and look at the back cover, it shows many copies of their vinyl LP burning in the middle of the field, which is fantastic. Um, this was also used as the cover 
for their second album. Um, so yeah, more on the police car in a moment. That will become very important to the rest of our story. But hilariously, they soon after released another version of that album with all the offending samples removed to the point where there were actually long periods of silence. And this version included detailed instructions on how the listeners could recreate the original by playing back up to three records simultaneously. So take that, copyright lawyers. Uh, again, copyright liberation front. Then they released another album, 1988's Who Killed the Jams, before, again, changing direction completely. And later that year, in 1988, they decided to just quit fooling around and shoot for the top by recording a novelty pop song. And to do this, they decided to mash up two mainstays of English pop culture. The first would be Doctor Who, and the second would be Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part Two. So for those not in the know, Doctor Who is a beloved and long-running sci-fi TV franchise, which in the 1980s at least, had famously low-budget special effects. And the song Rock and Roll Part Two is, I'm sure, immediately recognizable to anyone who's ever attended any sporting event in the United States. It has this odd shuffling beat that is not normally associated, let's say, with hip-hop or dance music. And Bill later described it, the glitter beat, maybe with a lack of 21st century sensitivity as, quote, the most club-footed white beat going. <laughs> anyway, uh, they mashed up those two things and threw in some ridiculously dumb lyrics and horn samples and foisted it off on the world as the smash hit Doctrine the Tardis, the name being a play on Cold Cut's famous house track, Doctor in the House. Uh, however, this record came out not as the jams, but as the Time Lords. So again, to translate, in the Doctor Who storyline, the Time Lords were a race of human-like extraterrestrials. Doctor Who himself was one of these. Uh, he would travel through time and space in his TARDIS, which is a made-up word that's short for time and relative dimension in space. So it was kind of a teleportation device slash time machine disguised as an English post box, because why not? Uh, so now you get all the relevant puns and references that Bill and Jimmy used in this release to firmly target the British youth of 1988. And the final conceit for all of this was that they credited Jimmy's car, that police car, which they now called Ford Time Lord, as the whole creative force, so he was the front man or front car for the band. <laughs> and as dumb as all of this sound, incredibly, it worked. Uh, this record spent a week at the top of the British charts, assuring the Time Lords an appearance on top of the Pops, where Bill and Jimmy donned ridiculous full top hat and tails outfits and mind-playing Flying V guitars on a record that had no guitars, surrounded by Daleks and dancers with cutaways to Ford Time Lord driving around the countryside. Check it out on YouTube. It's truly amazing. The public ate this up, but the music press smelled a rat. Uh, reviews at the time described the song as rancid, pure, unadulterated agony, excruciating, <laughs> and a record so noxious that a top 10 place can be its only destiny. <laughs> So if there was any question 
that Bill and Jimmy were subversives, they completely erased it by then releasing a book, as you do once you have a hit record. So this was a fairly well-written and forthright item that is best summed up by its full title. The Manual, How to Have a Number One the Easy Way. Subtitle, The Justified Ancients of Moo Moo Reveal Their Zenarchistic Method Used in Making the Unthinkable Happen. In other words, it was kind of an anarchist's cookbook for the music industry. And if you read it, you'll see it's 54 very well-written and wryly humorous pages that describe in exacting detail how to go about having a number one hit record in 1988, just as the Time Lords did. And not surprisingly, it's completely counterintuitive. They quickly point out that talent and musical ability have nothing to do with it. In fact, they suggest you should sell any music gear you have and quit any band you're in. And it's best to be poor because it sharpens your wits and keeps you from making wrong decisions. And famously, the first step is to begin any Sunday evening with just a felt-tip pen and a radio. So that's all you really needed to have a hit number one record. And then from there, it proceeds to explain step-by-step how to take advantage of every aspect of the cynical, money-driven British music industry as it existed in the late 1980s. And they also correctly point out that all of their advice would soon be made irrelevant thanks to the march of technology. And how true that would be, by 2000, anyone could use an ordinary PC to make studio-quality music without ever setting foot in a professional recording studio. And a few bands did buy the manual, and they did follow its steps with mixed results. And admittedly, the Time Lord's success had as much to do with luck as maybe anything else. They were just in the right place at the right time. Um, The manual is widely available online. I encourage you, if you haven't already, to check it out and read it. It really is fascinating for the depth of knowledge in there. Uh, and it's, it reads well as an expose of the music industry, uh, which an ordinary consumer might be forgiven for thinking was driven by some sort of artistic merit. It clearly wasn't. But more importantly, I like the manual because it's very encouraging. Uh, Bill and Jimmy just sell themselves as regular people. Anyone can do this, they say. Uh, if you want a number one hit record, you can have it. You don't have to be special. And as Bill says, it won't make you rich, it won't make you happy, but you can have it. So check out the manual, it's online. Um, It was around this time that Bill and Jimmy started using the name the KLF. Uh, It had previously appeared on some jams releases as the name of their label, KLF Communications, But it was promoted to the main act in 1988 as they shifted away from hip-hop and towards dance music. And as I said earlier, KLF was short for Copyright Liberation Front, which jived with the jam's preferred approach to composition. Uh, As the KLF, they started focusing on what they called trance music, yet another genre that they would establish. In 1988, they started releasing, as the KLF, a series of so-called pure trance 12-inch singles, and these were minimalistic and featured mostly repetitive beats and synths with very little sampling and no vocals. Uh, The first of these was a modest little three-note ditty called What Time Is Love, which would later evolve into their signature tune. 
Other pure trance releases followed and began to develop an underground following. Which brings us to 1989 and the start of The White Room. So strangely, this album began not as a studio album, but as a film soundtrack. And even before that, it began, supposedly, again, it's hard to, to piece out the legend from reality, but it supposedly began as a strange contract that the band received in the post. And it could be that their association with the Illuminatus trilogy brought them into the, the attention of conspiracy weirdos around the world. But regardless, this contract was between an individual calling themselves Eternity and the Jams. And part of the contract required the Jams to document their voyage to a mystical place known only as the White Room, the nature of which was left to their imaginations. And doing so would grant them access to the real White Room, whatever that was, of course, their legal counsel advised them not to sign a strange contract, but naturally, as iconoclasts, they did it. Uh, their original plan was to present the journey as an art exhibition, but with cash coming in from the sales of Doctor and the TARDIS, Jimmy suggested making a feature film. So they hired their friend Bill Butt to film it, and after financial and logistical challenges that were worthy of Terry Gilliam... <laughs> They succeeded in making a 50-odd minute film of the KLF driving the Jamsmobile, which was formerly Ford Time Lord, through a variety of Spanish landscapes, eventually arriving at the mystical White Room. They had some doubt, though, that this was enough, a 50-minute film, so they decided that they could only really complete the project by making this the so-called inner film, and then they would have to film the outer film, which documented all the challenges in making the inner film while overlaying the potential legal and possibly supernatural peril of having signed this weird contract. And if this all sounds very complicated, that's because it was. And remember, kids, this was three years before Quentin Tarantino would release Reservoir Dogs in 1992, and five years before he'd release Pulp Fiction. So it leads to the question, was Quentin a fan of the KLF? Who knows? You decide. So meanwhile, while all this was going on, Bill and Jimmy put together a soundtrack and promoted the project by releasing the first single, which was called Kylie Said to Jason, along with a video that showed clips of the film. And this was another blatant cash grab because the Kylie and Jason referred to were Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan, who were then teen stars in the popular Australian sitcom Neighbors. And of course, Kylie would go on to worldwide success as a pop singer. But the band hoped that this single would rescue the whole film project from financial ruin. But unfortunately, it tanked and the White Room film would never be completed. That said, they did have some unforeseen successes of sorts. Uh, for one, their Pure Trance series had taken off in the clubs, giving them some indie cred and launching trance music as a genre, and for another, Jimmy's collaboration with Alex Patterson generated yet another successful band, The Orb, and yet another new genre, Ambient House. So Jimmy would leave The Orb before their first full-length album, which I'll discuss later, but he would go on to create an Ambient House masterpiece with Bill as the KLF, which they would release in 1989 as Chill Out. I might talk about this album in a later episode, so I'm not going to say a lot about it right now, but stay tuned. 
the orb and chill out would speak to the crowds of kids, basically, who are seeking some kind of way to come down from the excesses of early morning raves, hence this nice pastoral cover with the sheep sitting in a field. Uh, as you can imagine, this was a very creatively fertile time. And in the wider scene, remember, Britain was going through the so-called Madchester period. I talked about this somewhat in episode three about New Order's Substance album. Dance music was on the rise. Ecstasy was the substance of choice. And young people were going through their second so-called summer of love. Uh, the KLF were poised to ride this wave of the electronic renaissance, but as I stated before, they would push well beyond established industry boundaries. Uh, they ended up reworking tracks from the White Room soundtrack, adding more vocals and instrumentation, and the whole project began to take on an entirely new sound. It was bigger and bolder and just more everything, and Bill later stated he was trying to push electronic music into new territory, so the band dubbed the new sound Stadium House. And the calling card was the first single, What Time Is Love, live from Trans Central. And none of these tracks, I should say, were really live, but they added crowd effects in the studio to kind of boost the overall energy level. And I should also point out at this point that the KLF were not really a live act in the usual sense. Uh, they didn't tour. They didn't perform concerts. They didn't do DJ sets. However, they did stage events or happenings in the spirit of the Situationists. So this is a subversive attitude that was popular in the 70s and 80s culture, and it really guided much of what was going on in the original industrial and post-punk scenes. So Malcolm McLaren did this with the Sex Pistols. Factory Records did it as well. The idea was that everything had the potential to become a happening or art or meta art. Uh, Vini Riley could issue an album with sandpaper as the cover so that it destroyed the albums it sat next to in the listener's collection. Or Tony Wilson could give Martin Hannett's lawsuit an official Factory Records catalog number, Fact 61 if you must know. Uh, for the KLF's part, they placed importance on ceremony and ritual. And that's why they documented the burning of their first album. That's why they announced new records and happenings with graffiti. And then they would advertise that graffiti in the music press. And that's why they embraced the quasi-mystique of the Illuminatus trilogy, the 23 mystery and random conspiracy theories. Uh, maybe they took a page from Tony Wilson, who was well aware of the KLF and who famously said, and I paraphrase, if you have the choice between the reality and the legend, always choose the legend. <laughs> but this new version of What Time Is Love would become part one of their so-called Stadium House trilogy. Part two would be the single 3 a.m. Eternal live at the SSL in February 1991. This album, The White Room, would come out in March, followed by part three, the single for Last Train to Transcentral live from the Lost Continent in April. And I had to do to be honest, quite a bit of research to correctly piece together the timeline for all of this. It was very confusing, and it's very crazy how much was going on in such a brief period of time, especially when you consider this band had created at least three new genres of music. Um, so let's talk about where I was in all of this. Uh, I really knew nothing at the time of the KLF except 3 a.m. Eternal 
And that was true until 1997 or so, after I had read about them online and got fully into the history and the mythos and what they were doing. I had read the manual, and then I was curious to pick up some of their music. I remember going to a used CD store that had recently added a computer that customers could use to search the inventory. (laughs) This was a huge innovation in 1997, and today it's what we would now call a, a business differentiator. It was really something else. And anyway, that computer said that they did have a copy of The White Room, but it wasn't under the K's when I went looking for it. So, you know, me not having a family or kids and just having all the time in the world, I ended up searching the entire store, thousands of CDs, and eventually I found it in the other bin because this was a special edition. And you can see here that it has nothing on the spine. So it was very difficult to find in a CD store and it had been misfiled. And that's because this was a weird two-disc CD set of The White Room and their single for Justified and Ancient. So it's pretty cool. It has two discs. There's Justified and Ancient in there. Uh, The artwork on The White Room shows two speakers in the T configuration that they used in their Transcentral logo, which we see here on the inner sleeve, basically the same picture. Uh, There's a couple pages of song credits here, nothing very special. And most importantly, a picture of Bill and Jimmy holding sheep. And sheep, as you might notice, are a recurring theme, just as in the cover of Chill Out. Um, I should note that the version of The White Room that eventually came out is not the same as the soundtrack, uh, but the band did re-release the soundtrack version in April of 2021 on streaming services, as the White Room Director's Cut. So look for that if you have any interest in it. Um, Of course, as a fan of loud and aggressive electronic music, I was blown away with this album right away. Loved everything on it that I heard. And what did I hear? Um, Let's go track by track. Uh, It starts with an excerpt of Justified and Ancient. And this is merely meant as a taster. It's actually part of the first uh, track, which is really What Time Is Love. But it's meant to be an intro to the album. So the first thing you hear are some sound effects of wind. And it gradually introduces a guy singing over a light keyboard accompaniment. And the lyrics, though, if you listen, are pretty interesting. They're actually a warning. (laughs) Or they're actually maybe a statement of intent. They say, we don't want to upset the apple cart. We don't want to cause any harm. But if you don't like what we're going to do, you better not stop us because we're coming through. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Uh, That segues into What Time is Love, which starts out with a sample from the MC5's Kick Out the Jams and morphs into the full-blown stadium house version that we know and love. And listening to this for the first time was sort of the audio equivalent to the Ice Bucket Challenge. It was almost overwhelming to get dumped into that song immediately, especially at high volume. Uh, And later, Bill would refer to What Time is Love, which they would revisit again and again in their career as their three-note workhorse of a signature tune, (laughs) which is pretty accurate. Uh, That goes into Make It Rain. This is kind of a groovy, down-tempo song with some saxophone and some great vocals by Maxine Harvey. And that goes into the second part of the Stadium House trilogy, 3 a.m. Eternal, uh, another masterpiece. I have to say... 
though, that I prefer the soundtrack version of this tune, which is maybe a bit more subdued, a bit more groovy, and features the bass line more prominently. Uh, but again, can't say anything wrong with this. It is a classic. And this video would get pretty heavy rotation on MTV and at school dances, as I discovered. That goes into Church of the KLF. This is a really brief tune that's kind of just another down-tempo buffer between two of their biggest tracks ever, the second being Last Train to Trans Central, uh, possibly the densest, harshest groove on this album. And it does hit like a freight train and is maybe the best example here of what they meant by Stadium House. And I remember seeing Blue Man Group in 1998 or so, and they ended their show with this song as they dumped about three miles of toilet paper over the entire audience. And I just remember being overwhelmed by a rising tide of paper and everyone laughing and pulling at it with lights flashing and this song pounding. And it was, it was a sensory overload. It was a pretty amazing experience. Uh, that's what I associate that song with today. That goes into maybe the second half of the album, which has some slower songs like Build a Fire, which is a really pretty ballad with some lap steel and more of Maxine Harvey's vocals into the white room, which is a pretty straightforward dance tune, not too much new going on there. And then weirdly, it goes into No More Tears, which is a pretty odd reggae number with this real dubby bass line. And the album finishes with the full version of Justified and Ancient. Uh, this features Black Steel on vocals and is kind of like the come down song to just take the whole album out on a mellow note. Of course, they would later rework that track into yet another Stadium House masterpiece called Stand By The Jams, which I'll talk about in a moment. And I didn't say very much about each, very much about each track here because really the specifics of these tracks don't matter very much. The important thing is that this album contained the full Stadium House trilogy, What Time Is Love, 3 A.M. Eternal, and Last Train to Trans Central. Three genre-defining songs that would be endlessly imitated by millions of bands after this. Uh, the popularity of those songs alone would catapult this album to number three in the UK and number 39 in the US, cementing the KLF as worldwide pop superstars. The other tracks were good or not, the fact was they were more or less filler. And in fact, I prefer some of these less than some of the tunes that are on the rejected soundtrack version, like Go to Sleep, which was an early version of Last Train to Trans Central, and The Lover's Side, which is a great little tune, but oh well. Um, why do I love this album? Well, I love it like I love a rich dessert. It's probably not good for me in large doses, but now and then the taste can just be just the thing. And listening to the KLF for me is like eating a huge spoonful of chocolate frosting. <laughs> it's mindless and vapid, but at the same time is just a sensory overload. And let's face it, in this life, sometimes you need that sensory overload. Um, the Stadium House trilogy of songs are really, to me, a fulfillment of sorts of what electronic music could become. And maybe they were also a prediction of some later bands, uh, or definitely an influence on those bands. So Daft Punk comes to mind. Uh, their albums, frankly, owe the KLF a huge debt. So if you're a fan of Daft Punk and never heard of the KLF, check out the KLF. Um, Daft Punk's album, 
Alive 1997, ought to settle the question of whether house music could in fact belong in a stadium. And spoiler alert, it could. Uh, In fact, Daft Punk made a long-form road movie of their own called Electroma, which bears remarkable similarities to the inner movie of The White Room. It has two characters that go on a mostly silent voyage, first in a car and then on foot. Uh, They visit a room that is, in fact, mostly white, in which a curious transformation takes place. And Electroma is also on YouTube, and I encourage you to check it out. But yeah, I love The White Room because it is, to me, a distillation of all that the KLF achieved in their career. It's maybe a high watermark of sorts, and it proves that after all their situationist pranksterism and cynical industry trolling, they were at their heart fans of pop music. In fact, this is some of the most successful pop music the world has ever seen, and this is no surprise because Bill Drummond said as much in the manual if you were paying attention. He says in so many words that the KLF's pure love of pop is what made them succeed and that the fans never would have latched onto them if they had been insincere. But it's kind of hard for me to take that at face value. Uh, Keep in mind that this discerning public would latch onto boy bands in another 10 years. So really, what did they know? Um, The White Room, to me, was maybe Bill and Jimmy's purest expression of pop music in general and of dance music's place in that. It seemed to me maybe that earlier and their later efforts all had some sort of angle or some degree of taking the piss. Uh, But with the White Room, they proved that electronic dance music could fill roles that had been normally reserved for rock. So it really was boundary-defying in that way. And the fact of the matter is that the KLF became the biggest selling singles act in the world for 1991. And they proved the naysayers wrong, and they proved that a band could still succeed on their own terms, even if that meant changing the rules to suit themselves. Um, I love the KLF in general because of their whole meta shenanigans and the way they employed anti-art to confuse and enlighten and ultimately to transcend. Uh, Let them be examples to us all. So after the White Room, what happened? Uh, First, I just have to say that there is no way I'm going to capture the full breadth of the KLF's antics in a single podcast. (laughs) It's just not possible for me to communicate the full scope. It's really awe-inspiring and To cover it all, this episode would have to be like five hours long, and neither of us, let's agree, have time for that. So the best I can do is give you the flavor of it in hopes that you'll be interested enough to dig further. But needless to say, I'm skipping over a lot of puzzling mysteries and funny anecdotes, and it's pretty clear even now that Bill and Jimmy sometimes can't explain why they did what they did. And in that sense, in my mind, they're true artists, right? They're following their muse, folks, and they're not really answerable for the whys and the hows of that. Uh, But let's at least hit the high, obvious points in what remained of their career. And we're going to just kind of do this montage style in the interest of time. So later in 1991, they'd release a video called The Rights of Moo, which featured robed fans being led off into the desert to witness the ritual burning of a wicker man. And it's hard to say if they got the idea from Burning Man or not, uh, but I know that Burning Man started in 1986, so unfortunately I can't credit the KLF with inventing Burning Man. 
uh, December 1991. They released a stadium house version of Justified and Ancient with country music legend Tammy Wynette on vocals. This was renamed to Stand By the Jams, which is a reference to her signature tune, Stand By Your Man. By all accounts, Tammy was pretty confused as to who they were and why they wanted her, but was very gracious about it. And it must be said that Bill Drummond is a huge country music fan, so Tammy must have always been on his short list of people he wanted to work with. Uh, Anyway, they released a video for this tune, which you just have to see. It puts Tammy Wynette on a pedestal, figuratively and literally, and sort of fortunately or not, opened the door to this whole idea of contemporary pop acts collaborating with stars from prior generations. Thanks a lot, KLF. Uh, In February 1992, the KLF famously retired from the music industry by performing at the Brit Awards with metal band Extreme Noise Terror. (laughs) So together they performed a metal version of 3AM Eternal that featured Bill wearing a trench coat and hobbling around the stage on a crutch while shouting the lyrics into a microphone. Then he stumbled off stage and returned with a machine gun. He fired blanks into the crowd while ending the song in a shower of pyro. And I get that this hits different in 21st century America, but in 20th century England, it wasn't so much alarming as just puzzling. After that happened, the curtain came down, and you could hear their manager, Scott Peering, stating, the KLF have now left the music industry. And sure enough, they subsequently deleted their entire back catalog, making it not available anymore, thereby, thereby sacrificing what would surely have been a fortune in future record sales. Why did they do this? They refused to say. Later, in 1992, they formed the K Foundation, and they attempted to give a cash award of 40,000 pounds to the worst artist of the year, an act that was later described as hostile philanthropy. (laughs) And it should be noted that this amount was carefully selected to be twice that of the Turner Prize. And the whole thing kicked off a media frenzy and no little debate in the world of art criticism. And they awarded the prize to sculptor Rachel White-Reed, who only accepted it when Bill and Jimmy threatened to have their longtime associate, Gimpo, light the award on fire, which gave them another idea. So, on August 23rd, 1994, the Kay Foundation traveled with Gimpo to the Scottish Isle of Jura. Gimpo set up a video camera and proceeded to film Bill and Jimmy burning the bulk of their Kay Foundation money. One million pounds in cash. And for those doing the math, that's 20,000 50-pound bills. And financially, that's the equivalent to over two million pounds today. And that money is now simply gone, folks. It wasn't insured. It wasn't recovered. It went up in smoke. And this was, without a doubt, the most provocative thing they had yet done. An act that some would go so far as to describe as evil and about which even Bill and Jimmy would, in interviews over subsequent decades, express some regret about. However, they released the film as Watch the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid. (laughs) It would subsequently tour it to stunned audiences. (laughs) Why did they do it? They weren't saying. 
because naturally they had signed a contract which was probably written by themselves, agreeing not to discuss the matter for a period of 23 years. Which neatly brings us to the Where Are They Now segment. So, the 23-year moratorium ended as planned in 2017, and sure enough, Bill and Jimmy emerged into the public eye once more. They heralded their return by hanging posters in London declaring, 2017, what the F is going on? (laughs) And soon it became clear that something was up, but not from the KLF. It turns out the jams had been working on new material, but not music. Instead, they released a very peculiar novel titled 2023, A Trilogy. Uh, I've read this book, and I can tell you that it is a hot mess. (laughs) Though in a good way, um, the best way for me to describe it is to say that it is an alternate reality that puts the last 20 years of pop culture in a blender and just dumps it out over key events in Bill and Jimmy's career. Uh, The names change, but it's usually possible to tell who and what they're talking about. Um, I briefly considered putting together a website to annotate this book and got about 10 pages in before deciding I had better things to do with my life. Um, That is a project that I'm sure the internet could tackle with the right person to organize it. But yeah, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, Bill and Jimmy duly showed up at 23 seconds past midnight on the 23rd of August 2017, precisely 23 years after they had burnt a million pounds. And they drove their ice cream van playing its What Time Is Love chimes very slowly, uh, leading a crowd of fans to a bookshop. Here's the ice cream van, of course. And at the bookshop, they proceeded to have a book stamping. And by the way, that's kind of like a book signing, except the authors are using stamps instead of signing their names, and it doesn't really involve stepping on books, although I wouldn't have put it past them. But this led to a three-day festival that included a debate about why they burnt a million pounds, but of course it produced no firm answers. So that's where they stand today, living legends, and depending on who you ask, possibly the most dangerous people in the wider world of popular art. Um, There is a lot I didn't even mention about them, so if any of this captured your imagination, feel free to dive down into the KLF rabbit hole. But trust me, it's it's deep and wide. And some topics for you to consider in no particular order. Uh, what Transcentral really was. Uh, all about the dead sheep at the Brit Awards after party. Uh, their 23-minute reunion show at the Barbican in 1997. The F the Millennium Project. The One World Orchestra. The Toxith Day of the Dead. The People's Pyramid. And without a doubt... My favorite topic, the black room. Uh, They mentioned the black room in interviews even before the white room came out. It was always planned to be the sister album to the white room. Uh, Bill at the time described it as techno metal and as the complete yin to the white room's yang and as Megadeth with drum machines. (laughs) However, it's not clear that any of it was ever recorded. And you have to think, that it was never recorded. Because in this world, with uh, internet file sharing, if it had been out there, if anyone had had it, we would all have it by now. But if it had been recorded, you have to think it would have been pretty interesting to see how much it differed from Ministry, 
who by 1991 had pretty much perfected the whole Megadeth with drum machines thing. Um, for those who aren't familiar, go out and listen to Ministries, Mind is the Terrible Thing to Taste in the Land of Rape and Honey. That's probably what the Black Room would have sounded like, but fans will never know. Uh, Bill and Jimmy have each pursued solo projects uh, since the White Room as well. Uh, Bill, of course, has his books, which are all pretty interesting, and I encourage you to check them out. Uh, you can also check out, in no particular order, The Pen Kiln Burn, MyDeath.net, HughHorrors.com, OpenManifesto.com, No Music Day, and The Seventeen. Uh, Jimmy pursued other musical ventures, including something called Solid Gold Chartbusters, in which he attempted to repeat getting a number one album. Uh, spoiler alert, it didn't work. Uh, he had Black Smoke with James Fogarty, and he was in Transit Kings with Alex Patterson and Guy Pratt. He also produced a wide variety of visual art and sculptures, and I didn't even mention until now that he famously drew one of the most popular Lord of the Rings posters from the 1980s, long before the jams were a thing. Uh, if you were alive then, I can almost guarantee that you're familiar with this poster. Just go out and Google Caudi Lord of the Rings to check it out, and you'll go, oh yeah, wow, he did that too? <laughs> He's a really talented artist. Anyway, there you have it, kids. Postmodern, situational tricksters, founders of Ambient House, Stadium House, and Trance Music, the KLF, otherwise known as the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, and furthermore known as the Jams. It turns out they were far more than just another flash-in-the-pan techno band, and if their music doesn't get you thinking, their career definitely will. And remember, like Bill and Jimmy said, you can start on any Sunday evening. This has been Stronger Than Reason, episode 16. We are available on YouTube and as a podcast, wherever you do the podcast thing. And if you like this show, please stick around because I have a lot of other stuff to talk about, mostly but not always related to 80s and 90s electronic, industrial, and alternative music. And folks, I'm just a weird middle-aged guy sharing my opinions. Please feel free to leave yours as a comment below. Please do like and subscribe. It helps people find the show. And if you made it this far, bless you. You're one of the good ones. And I personally thank you. Until next time, be good and stay strong. <laughs>